Hi, everybody. Hello and welcome. To another episode of History and History Podcast. I'm apparently in trouble for not talking fast enough. <laughs> I just wanted you to start the show. And I was gonna, but then you kept doing weird shit over there. I wasn't doing anything. I was counting you in. That's what we're supposed to do. You know, I'm Amador. <laughs> Amador. And I'm Alex. Mm-hmm. And, uh... We're going to talk about another a story from history, as we do on this podcast. We are, but in recent history, we just went on a big family vacation. We did. To um, San Clemente, California. Shout out, San Clemente. Home of... Clouds. Clouds, fog, <laughs> and high 60 degree weather. Nice. It was great. Uh, the sunniest day was the day we arrived. And then we never saw the sun again. <laughs> never again. Somehow still got a sunburn, but we did still get it a sunburn. One hundred percent cloud cover. The Spent whole a time. lot of time in an infinity pool and hot tub, mainly the hot tub. Yeah, we got a little drunk, if you know what I mean. <laughs> a couple times, a couple two, three times. Uh, your daughter was obsessed with the airplanes. Airplanes, the pool, the just everything. She loved it. She had a great time. She really did. And she traveled very well, much better than either you or I expected. Yeah. Well, it does help that she was already obsessed with planes before we got on a plane. True. She was very excited. Looked yeah. out the window the whole time. Just kind of bounced around between our laps. and She did very well. It was good. Very proud of her. She won't remember any of it, but... That's fine. We will. Yeah. And we have a bunch of pictures and stuff to show her. Be like, remember the time you did this? And she'd be like, no. <laughs> well, you did. We're so close to a thousand listens now. I think yeah. we're like two away or something like that. I think it was at like nine, nine, seven, or eight the I last time I checked. I haven't checked it. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening, subscribing, telling your friends, shouting in the streets that this is your favorite history podcast. Maybe we shouldn't shout into the mic. So. As it should be. Uh, don't forget to rate, like, share, and subscribe to all your on all your favorite platforms. H and H Story Pod on Twitter. History and History Podcast on Facebook. History and History Podcast on Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at Amandor92. You can follow Alex on Twitter at it's Alex, not Alex. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you. Thank you all. It's exciting. We got another good episode for you this week. Uh, last week we talked about Mr. Phineas Gage and his uh, problem with a piece of iron being shot through his brain. Uh, any thoughts on that? We didn't really talk. We we I was really bad on social media this week about getting it up. I like I just got it up on YouTube today. Yeah, I mean we had some shit going on. We like we recorded the podcast and left the next morning, so right. there was zero time. And then we just got back Tuesday night. So. And there was, you both had strep and like yeah, it like all, it was it was just a rough it was a rough week last week. But it was just we stressful. It was a really good week. I had a lot of fun. It was a good week. It was just yeah, stressful. Ah, yawn right into the mic. Jesus, boring myself. Oh well, good. Anyway, uh, yeah. So we talked about Phineas Gage and his uh, his meeting with uh, Iron Rod that he probably would have rather not have had but oh well live and learn as he did yeah this week though this week you're telling us a story i sure am and 
as promised, I'm going to tell you about a song. Well, a song. I'm going to tell you about a person from a Sabaton song. Oh, a person. A person. I thought you were going to do an event. Well, no. Okay. There were. I mean, obviously, you, you it's Sabaton. Pick, There's a billion to yeah, choose you from. Can pick hundreds of them. I was gonna do the Night Witches. Okay. But famous bombers, famous Russian bombers. A whole lot of like names and words in there that Russian names and words. It, it was too tough. I tried. Like I started, <laughs> and then I was like, God damn, this is gonna be a really shitty episode of people just being like, "Hello." Can't say anything. So the one that I'm doing now, I'm just going to kind of dance around the the big German words. Oh, boy. <laughs> so uh, For those of you who don't know, well, do you want to explain who Sabaton is for people who are listening and don't know? So Sabaton is a Swedish metal band that basically writes songs about history, mostly like military and war history, that kind of thing. Mostly, yeah. Um, and yeah they have a whole album that this is off of called the great war um which is all about world war one um they also have a youtube channel where they have a historian um go through each of their like the subject matter for each of their songs and talk about like the actual stories behind them which is really neat and it's also one of the sources for we'll make sure that uh, we'll make sure that the link for Sabaton's YouTube channel and their history, Sabaton's history channel is also linked in the description. Right. If you're interested, it's S-A-B-A-T-O-N, Sabaton. Which is what, yeah, were those, uh, those are the things that go on your feet. What? There, it's a, it's a, it's foot armor. Is it? Yeah. Oh. Like in the same way that a gauntlet is hand armor. Sabaton, is it? Yeah, Sabaton's are like boots. Oh. I didn't know that. Well, now you do. <laughs> okay, great. The lead singer uh, has a, like, one of those wide uh, mohawks, you know, the wide, like, short mohawks. Mm-hmm. And then he always wears, like, aviator sunglasses, and he has, like, this bulletproof vest on all the time that has, like, metal plates on the front. A handmade bulletproof vest. Right. Very cool. And they all, oh, well, at least when we saw them, we have seen them play once. Uh, back uh, at Soto in Seattle. Um, Which they, was a really cool venue. It was a really cool venue. They all wore, all the band members wore uh, black and white camouflage pants. Like they were all matching. That's right. And they had a giant tank on their set. Like the drum riser was a tank, which was very cool. Yeah. It was a fun concert. It was a fun concert. It was the best, uh, one of the best concert experiences we've ever had because we didn't, we were like, Behind the A, it's they're not a bit very big band. I mean, they've gotten much bigger now with this album, but they've had they've had several albums before that. But so, but the point is, their the audience wasn't that big. It was maybe what a couple thousand people, if, if that, that like it was if maybe a thousand like people, five hundred people. It was pretty small, and so Alex and I were sitting at the bar kind of but we were like on this platform an elevated platform so we sat at the back of the crowd but just above them so we could see over the whole crowd and see like the entire stage but we weren't that far from the stage maybe 20 maybe 50 feet from the stage itself yeah 
Kind of so, like off to the side. They brought us pizza and drinks. Oh, it was and great. Was they brought us pizza and drinks throughout the whole show. Anything we ordered, they just brought it to us. And I was like, this is the this is the way to watch a concert. Like, we got to sit the whole time and still see everyone. Very old man of me to be like, I want to watch my concert <laughs> just sitting. I was just thinking, like, if it was a concert that I had seen before. Like, it was cool because I wasn't super into them at the time. Like, I knew a bunch of their songs and stuff because you played them all the time and I liked them. But now I, like follow them and stuff you know mm-hmm. so like for the time it was a good experience sure. but i think now i would like i'm definitely a down in the thick of it concert goer yeah i mean me too every maiden concert i've been to i've been first to the barrier on like right on the barrier that's just what i like but you and i had this discussion earlier today like i'm kind of done with that i think like i've done it so much now that i'm like man i don't want to fight people i don't want to have like some big fat sweaty guy on my back all day it's part of the charm like you have to if you don't go home smelling like other people but that's but then it's also like getting to the concert four hours early to make sure that you get up to the front or or you have to be one of those people that pushes their way to the front which you you, just find the holes yeah you kind of fill in gaps and such as people move i don't need to be like right at the front but like i do like to be down there where the, the floor, energy yeah at. the floor experience of a concert is is something else like it's a different it's a whole different vibe than sitting up in the stands it's the best yeah except for when you almost died at metallica that was different <laughs> that was a lot of people <laughs> pushing forward people. my feet left the ground during yeah the beginning of uh, for whom the bell tolls started and the bell was tolling for Alex because she her feet came off the ground and the crowd started pushing and we were like we need to get out of here I'm gonna die or someone's dead. <laughs> also, I don't like Metallica. So yeah, no. we were up there for Revenge Sevenfold. Yeah, your brother swears that there was a band that opened for Revenge Sevenfold and I don't believe him. I don't think so. I don't think there was either. Him and Troy both told me multiple times that Mashuga or someone like that opened for Avenged Sevenfold. And I'm like, mm, I don't think that's true. No. It was supposed to be Volbeat. It was supposed to be Volbeat. And that would have been great. And they didn't show up. Whatever. Anyway, anyway this is, we'll talk about all this on our on our music podcast. This <laughs> for, is the pa- podcast. for the Patreon subscribers. <laughs> we, today. We. Here. Right now. Together, right now. At this point mm-hmm. in our lives. Are going to talk about a man. Named Manfred von Richthofen. <laughs> the Red Baron? Yeah. Nice. So Manfred- Snoopy's rival. <laughs> Manfred von Richthofen was born in Kleinberg, Poland on May 2nd, 1892 into a prominent Prussian aristocratic family. Um, his father... Okay, I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going to say his parents' names because they're fucking wild. <laughs> and then I'm like for the rest of this pretty much going to dance around the German words because okay. nobody needs to sit through that. But his father was Major Albrecht Philipp Karl Julius Fairheer von Richtofen. <laughs> von Richtofen just meaning of Richtofen. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's a prominent family of Richtofen, like of the Richtofen clan. I don't know. Sure. Um. And his mother was Kuningund, <laughs> Kuningund von Schickfuss und Nurdorf. Uh, if, you're, uh, if you speak fluent German, go ahead and write in. Go ahead and send us a recording of how these words are supposed to be pronounced. We'd really appreciate it. Like I said, that's the last time I'm going to 
do that. So what were the first names, father and mother? His father was Albrecht. Albrecht and? And Kunigund. (laughs) Albrecht and Kunigund. (laughs) O-A-K. He had an elder sister and two younger brothers. We'll talk about one of the brothers later. His other brother and sister just kind of fall off. I don't know. Um, when he's little, he enjoys riding horses and hunting as well as gymnastics in school. That's very like European, I feel like. To do gymnastics in school? Yeah. Didn't you do gymnastics? When no, you were in I, school? Did, I did dance. Oh. Nick did gymnastics for like 10 minutes. I don't know what happened. <laughs> he's not European. Correct. <laughs> he excelled at parallel bars and won a number of awards. Um, he and his brothers hunted wild boar, elk, birds, and deer. So he kind of had like a, a normal rich kid childhood. Sure. Um, after being educated at home, he attended cadet training at the military school when he was 11. And after completing cadet training in 1911, he joined the Ulan Cavalry Unit. Um, so this is 1911. The cavalries aren't really big anymore. You know, like they're not fighting battles with horses. Right. It's a different kind of cavalry. N- no, this is a cavalry. This is a no, horse no, I mean, cavalry. No, I mean, nowadays is a different kind of cavalry. Sure. But the one, the Ulan cavalry that he's in mm-hmm. is horses. Right. And he's like, what the fuck? You said he liked horse riding. He does. But like he got into the military and he went to military school. He's like, I'm on a horse. <laughs> <laughs> is this 1803? <laughs> you know, uh, one funny thing. So listening to uh, another plug here for Dan Carlin's, uh, the... Uh, what was the name of his show? Something like um, the the steps to Armageddon or something like that. Anyway, his entire thirty hour podcast episodes about the history of World War One and how it started and all that. He talks about in reference to like these cavalry units and stuff. How when the war started, that France was still using cavalry units and like people on horses were running into battle and the germans were like we have tanks <laughs> <laughs> and this fucking guy let me tell you about him so when world war one began which nobody knows anything about which was kind of funny so i was watching that uh that <laughs> sabaton history video today mm-hmm. and um Joachim, the uh the singer the lead singer and the the history guy the historian dude mm-hmm. i don't remember his name but they were talking about how like the red baron is one of the symbols of world war one mm-hmm. like he just kind of exploded and got super famous sure and if you know if you've heard of if you know anything about world war one usually it's at least the red baron that's what i'm trying to say yeah so the red baron got super famous and he's like people don't remember this about it and they don't remember this about it or this big event and people just kind of don't know anything about world war one but they know the red baron and i was like my guy <laughs> you're like that's me <laughs> that's me i'm everybody how'd you know <laughs> it's me i'm people so that made me feel better about being stupid <laughs> <laughs> anyway when world war one began rick the finn served as a cavalry recon officer for both the eastern and western fronts seeing action in russia france and belgium um but when trench warfare became a thing uh, it, for those of you who don't know they Dug a bunch of trenches and sat at them. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. They shot at each other from them. And it, yeah, it made the traditional cavalry operations outdated and inefficient. Horses would fall in them. It was a bad, 
bad well there's the whole no man's land thing too like in between the there's the whole area between the two trenches if you run a horse across it they're just going to be shot to death right so rick defend's whole regiment was uh kind of they weren't disbanded but they were just like you're the cavalry but now you're serving as like dispatch runners and field phone operators and stuff like that mm. they're kind of the the their communications yeah kind of the grunt work of of wartime operations he was disappointed and bored at not being able to directly participate in combat he's like i just want to kill someone right. man. he's like i got <laughs> skills man he's like, i got an itch <laughs> problem is there ain't nothing to scratch oh god okay i lost my place completely all right oh yeah okay here so he was disappointed and bored at not being able to directly participate in combat and the last straw for rick the finn was an order to transfer the army's transfer to the army's supply branch um, his interest in the air service had been aroused by his examination of a mili- of a German military aircraft behind the lines, and he applied for a transfer to the Imperial German Army Air Service, which has a big, long German name, but this is the, like, dumb English translation. Later known as the Luftwaffe. No. Well. Later in- to be known as the Luftstrichtkräfte. Okay. Luftstrichtkräfte. In, in World War II, they were called the Luftwaffe. Okay, well, now it's called the Luftstrickcraft. <laughs> he was widely reported to have written in his application for transfer, quote, I have not gone to war in order to collect cheese and eggs, but for another purpose, end quote. <laughs> that other purpose being to kill some people. To do some killing. That's what I'm here for. All right. His request was granted, and Rick the Finn joined the flying service at the end of May in 1915. So from June to August 1915, Rick the Finn served as an observer for the recon mission over the Eastern Front. And by August, um, he was transferred to a flying unit uh, in a coastal city in Belgium. Um, he flew there with a friend and fellow pilot named George Zoomer, which I thought was a great name for a pilot. <laughs> who would later teach him to fly solo so originally like when he started flying and most of the time when we were flying in these um these old planes also planes are pretty new at this point like it's 1915 yeah the wright brothers had just pretty much done their stuff right so there's like there are these prop planes and like it's it's real low rent flying right now but you have the pilot that is obviously flying the plane and then you have these this one in the back that they call an observer and he's the one that's like shooting and whatever and like he's the lookout right the pilot's like i gotta make sure we don't die and the other guy's like i gotta make sure other people do die call them tail gunners usually well in here we're gonna call them observers sure because that's what i read the whole time so (laughs) (laughs) i know i lost my that tail gunners might have been a world war ii thing too because i don't know if they had um, I don't know if they had guns on the front. Otherwise, it would just be the gunner, right? Yeah. The whole reason they called them tail gunners because there was also front well, guns. Well, guns on the front do eventually happen. We'll get there. Mm-hmm. Um. Anyway, this George Zoomer guy teaches him how to fly solo. Okay, so now he Zoomer. Does, he doesn't have to rely on the two people. Like he can he can just kind of get shit done. He got transferred to um, Champagne, France. And assigned to, um, like, assigned to a different pilot. So he's still flying 
as a two-person team, but he can fly solo at this point. Okay. Um, he is believed to have shot down an attacking French Farman aircraft with his observer's machine gun in a tense battle over French lines, but he was not credited with this kill since it fell behind Allied lines and therefore cannot be confirmed. Oh. So throughout this whole thing, they consider like if a plane is shot down, it's considered a victory. Not necessarily if the people in it die. Um, so he has, in total, 80 victories. So he shot down 80 planes in his career, which is a ton. Like, the next person behind him is, like, 72 or something like that, which is still a lot. But, I mean, he just kind of paved the way for a whole bunch of this stuff to happen. Sure. And most of those record holders are the guys that he was, like, that were under him. He was their commander, and he, like, kind of took everybody under his wing. (laughs) (laughs) I knew you were going to say it. (laughs) But, yeah, so that's why he's so famous is because he just, like, he had so many victories, and the guys underneath him also had so many victories. He was good at killing, and he was good at teaching people how to kill. Like I said, not necessarily killing. All of them didn't die, but... All of them went down. Here's the thing, though. It's World War One. If you, most people don't survive airplane crashes now. <laughs> That's true. All right, but well, they're also falling. I mean, plane. They're also not flying at like thirty thousand feet either. So let's talk about Boki. Adam no, Boquist. No, not defenseman th- for the no. Oswald Boki. <laughs> Uh, Rick Defin had a chance meeting with a German ace fighter pilot, Oswald Bulky. So an ace fighter pilot means that you have five victories or more. Okay. Not very much. No. But that also tells you that, like, it's fucking hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> like, you're considered elite if you shoot down five planes, and he shot down 80. Anyway. Oswald Bulky is like this, uh, he's the original Red Baron. Like, he's the, he's the guy you go to when you want to learn how to fly a plane and how to fly it well. Mm-hmm. Um, it led to him uh, entering training as a pilot in October 1915. And in February of 1916, he rescued, quote-unquote, his brother from the boredom of training new troops and encouraged him to transfer to, um, to the, like, flight program. Mm-hmm. So his brother is kind of on the same path, too. His brother's kind of a piece of shit, though, so we'll talk about that in a minute. (laughs) Uh, Manfred. I don't like that they call him that. What's his last name? Rick Defin. Rick Defin joined the number two bomber squadron flying a two-seater. Initially, he appeared to be a below-average pilot. He struggled to control his aircraft. He crashed during his first flight at the controls, and despite this poor start, he rapidly became attuned to his aircraft. Um, He was over Verdun on April 26, 1916, and he fired on a French uh, uh, French plane, shooting it down. So that was his first, like, confirmed... Victory. Confirmed victory, right. Um, he didn't receive the official credit because he was not the one that shot it down. <laughs> he was the pilot, the pilot not gotcha. the shooter. Um, a week later, he decided to ignore more experienced pilots' advice against flying through a thunderstorm, he later noted that he had been, quote, lucky to get through the weather, 
and vowed never again to fly in such conditions unless ordered to do so. Hey, man, don't fly through that thunderstorm. I know what I'm doing. I don't need what advice from you. Never, yeah. Flies through it. He's like, oh, I should have done that. <laughs> so he meets this bulky guy again in August of 1968, about a year after he did the first time. And uh, Bulky selected him to join his unit, which is one of the first German fighter squadrons. Um, Bulky was killed during a midair collision with a friendly aircraft. Friendly aircraft. Friendly aircraft. Holy shit. <laughs> friendly air. He hit another German in the air <laughs> and died. And uh, Rick the Finn watched the whole thing. He what? He watched the whole thing. So Rick the Finn scored his first confirmed vic- his first confirmed victory. Like this one is his. This is the first one in his book. Um, when he engaged Second Lieutenant Lionel Morris and his observer Tom Rees in the skies over France in September of 1916, his autobiography states he did write a book. Um, quote: "I honored the fallen enemy by placing a stone on his beautiful grave." End quote. This was kind of a thing for him. Um, so he would buy little silver, like pure silver cups with uh, like some shit on them. Engraved with the date and the type of enemy aircraft. And he would put this on their graves if they died. So that's kind of like a... Calling card. Well... Like a serial killer. <laughs> I mean, kind of, but like in a way to honor them of like... All's fair in love and war, but I'm sorry. Like, here, (laughs) have this little thing. But then, towards, like, the middle of the war, there were silver rations because they needed to make bullets and shit. So (laughs) he had to stop. Bullets? What are they, fighting werewolves? (laughs) (laughs) What? Silver bullets is what you use to kill werewolves. Isn't that what Papa Joe drinks? Silver bullets? Yeah. Yeah. Who doesn't like a Coors Light? A little, a little silver bullet and a little hot damn. Woo! I don't know. Okay. Well, he continued to celebrate each of his victories in the same manner until he had 60 cups, by which time the dwindling supply of silver in blockaded Germany meant that silver cups could no longer be supplied. Richtofen discontinued his orders at this stage rather than accept cups made of base metal. <laughs> He's like, I don't want that lead shit. Right. His brother's name was Lothar, which is awesome. Sounds not German. Sounds like Swedish or something. It sounds like Norwegian, like a Viking name. His brother Lothar, who had 40 victories in his whole life, um, used risky, aggressive tactics. But Manfred Richtofen was not a spectacular or aerobatic. Oh, my God. (laughs) Aerobatic. That was right. Aerobatic. Aerobatic pilot like his brother. He wasn't doing spins and shit. No, his brother was like. Like a like a blue angel. Well, <laughs> <He's so> t- <laughs> he was just reckless, really, is what happened. But uh, he was just more like calculated and really wanted to be good at it, mm-hmm. like technically good at it. Um, he was a noted tactician and squadron leader and a fine marksman. Typically, he would dive from above to attack with the advantage of the sun behind him. When other pilots of his squadron covering his rear, this is flanks. the brother, or is this Manfred? No, this is. Rick and the Bob. Red Baron, Rick Defin. <laughs> Rick and this makes me think of the, the was the popcorn guy. <laughs> Redenbacher. Red. <laughs> stupid. <laughs> it makes me think of Trip Defin. 
Like why turkey put you to sleep? <laughs> turkey. It's anyway. not because I ate an entire week's worth of food in an hour. No, it's the turkey. <laughs> all right. Anyway, Richtofen. So Richtofen is the squad leader with the military tactics and all that. Yeah, Richtofen is who we're talking about. He's a Red Baron. Yeah, I know, but you mentioned his brother. I thought maybe his brother was also a squadron leader. No, he was just a piece of shit, reckless Blue kid Angel. pilot. Sure. Yeah. He wasn't a Blue Angel. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> All right, so in November of 1916, like all of this has happened within a year. Mm-hmm. So in November 1916, Richtofen shot down his most famous adversary, the British ace major Leno Hawker, described by Richtofen as, quote, the British bulky. So this guy's good. He's to be feared and respected and all that. And the victory came after a long dogfight. When Hawker was shot in the back of the head as he attempted to escape back to his own lines. After this combat, Richtofen was convinced that he needed a fighter aircraft with more agility, even with a loss of speed. So he switched to the Albatross D3. Okay. Which is just a type of plane. Sure. Um, Richtofen was flying in combat when his aircraft was shot through the fuel tank by Edwin Benbow, who was credited with a victory from this fight. Benbow? Because the plane went down. He didn't die, but he had the victory anyway. Richtofen was able to make a forced landing without his aircraft catching fire. It's good. Considering his gas tank was shot, that's impressive. Richtofen flew the celebrated... uh, Okay, so he was... He was... uh, He was flying this Albatross 3 plane. Then he switched over to uh, what's called a Fokker D1 plane. Okay. Um, from late July 1917. So the distinctive three-winged aircraft um, is the one that he's most typically known for. Okay. He didn't use it until kind of the end of what, like the end of his career, but um, like he was the first one to to fly this Fokker plane. They kind of made it specially for him to be their like the face of their brand sure. kind of thing. Um, and this, like, this is one that, so this is what he's looking for. A little bit more agile, maybe a little less speed, but he's able to do what he needs to do with it. Yeah. Um, it meets his requirements. Right. So this whole time, like, the Allied forces are upping their plane game. Like, they're coming out with new shit. Everything is fancy. It's going really fast. They have all the supplies. Right. But they're not. Like they, so they, that's Germany. They being Germany, yeah. Um, so he's just kind of getting pissed off of like they're out, they're out flying us, basically because of mechanics, right? Because of technology, right? They just have, you know. So Fokker comes out with his plane, and um, like he's just his whole thing is like keep updating it. Like we gotta, we gotta be able to fight in this stuff, you know. Right. Um. So he didn't use the Fokker plane exclusively until after it was reissued with strength and wings and all kinds of um all kinds of upgrades and stuff. But only 19 of his 80 kills were made in this type of aircraft despite the popular link between Richtofen and the Fokker D1 plane. Sure, it's that one that's like it looks like they say it's three wings, but it looks like four wings, right? It's like the big I guess it's because it's the big wing across the top. And that's the body and those two wings on the bottom that are under that top wing. Yeah. It's I guess it is a three wing. It's the one that when you think Red Baron, it's the yeah, the plane that's that the he, plane. 
Yeah. Um, so he gets this bright idea to paint it red. <laughs> um, I'm not really sure why he painted it red, but, uh, well, I guess there's a, there's a quote here that says, Richtofen took the flamboyant step of having his out or his, uh, his airplane painted red when he became a squadron commander. His autobiography states, quote, For whatever reason, one fine day, I came upon the idea of having my crate painted glaring red. The result was that absolutely everyone could not help but notice my red bird. In fact, my opponents also seemed to be not entirely unaware. End quote. So he wants this to be flashy. Right. He's like, when I shoot you down, you gotta know it was me. He's like, A... The my my allies will know where I'm at at all times, but also so will the enemy. But I'm okay with that. Right. So his um his squadron that he was the leader of was called the Josta Eleven, and the Josta Eleven um also took to painting parts of their aircraft red. What? I'm just thinking of uh it reminds me of the the so the Family Guy skit when they're talking about Star Wars. And they do the whole Star Wars thing of like red leader standing by. That's like that's what makes me think of that. But he's he's a squadron leader. His plane's red. But then they do like red leader standing by, red foreman standing by, red fox standing by, and they just name off a bunch of people. <laughs> well, sorry, it makes me giggle. As you can probably uh, surmise, having one red plane in the squadron is not really like the best war tactic. Of like, here's our leader. Right. So a bunch of other uh, JASTA 11 members also paint parts of their aircraft red um, to make their leader less conspicuous, to avoid having him singled out in a fight. Sure. Uh, right. Because that's what they always say is like aim for the aim for the like the leaders, aim for the captains, aim right. for that kind of stuff. Because that creates chaos. Right. But um, that kind of became a unit identification. So other units soon adopted their own squadron colors and like the decoration of fighters became general throughout the Lustretkraft, <laughs> <laughs> the Air Force. I like how you can't just say it with your own accent. You have to like, Lustretkraft. Well, yeah. Like to <laughs> really lean in. Of course. The German high command permitted this practice in spite of obvious drawbacks from the point of view of intelligence, and <laughs> German propaganda made much of it by ref- made much of it by referring to Richtofen as uh, the red fighter pilot. So he became kind of the face of the war and like a, a symbol of hope for the German people and for the non-allied forces, mm-hmm. you know. Um, as the, the red uh, fighter pilot. They weren't the Axis. They were the the detente, I think, is what they're called. Uh, sure. All right. So during a visit to, like, he goes back home on a break, or I don't know how that works in the military, or how it worked in the German military in the 1910s, but are you? I'm listening. It's not the detente. That was a, it's a different, <laughs> that's a, that's a French word that means a release from tension. Great. Well, anyway, he goes home to see his mom. Hey, mom. And uh, she asked him why he risked his life every day. <laughs> and he said, quote, for the man in the trenches, I want to ease his hard lot in life by keeping the enemy flyers away from him. End quote. So he's just. That's fair. He's doing his good. Yeah. He's like, I'm providing air support. That's what I'm here for. Yeah. 
uh, Richtofen kind of like exploded. He was thriving. Um, his led his new unit to unparalleled success, peaking during what was called Bloody April in 1917. In that month alone, he shot down 22 British aircraft, including four in a single day, raising his official tally to 52 at this point. Remember, well, I was just going to say, so remember by 1917, like, and especially in April of 1917, like, America's in. Remember, March is when the whole, if you listen to a couple episodes ago, talk about the Zimmerman telegram. Remember, America gets notified of that in March of 1917. So this is Germany's, like, last, they called it the spring offensive, April and all that stuff. Like, this is their last push for victory. Right. Before America comes in and goes, all right, kids, stop fighting. By June, he had become the commander of the first of the new larger fighter wing formations, and these were um, like highly mobile combined tactical units that could move at short notice. So basically, they were just like this group of pilots that would camp if they needed to. They would go kind of wherever they needed to. They were the like the go where they needed to. I don't know what I'm trying to say here, but... (laughs) Um, the new command became widely known as the Flying Circus due to the unit's brightly colored aircraft and its mobility, <clears throat> including the use of tents, trains, and caravans where they needed to. Um, so unlike Bulky, the guy who taught him how to fly, mm-hmm. um, he was a, a um, he led by example in the force of will, um, <laughs> rather than by inspiration. So he wasn't the world's best teacher he wasn't like uh he's kind of like how tom describes his dad of like uh he's like well just do it this way and they're like that's not teaching like you can't just tell me to do it that way you gotta show me how to do it no no just do it this do it the way i do it right (laughs) so he was often described as distant unemotional and rather humorless although some colleagues contended otherwise um so he was probably like that with most of his men but like his pals he's probably fine with right he was cordial to officers and enlisted men and um he urged his pilots like one of his big things was to remain on good terms with the mechanics who maintain their aircraft (laughs) he taught his pilots the basic rule which he wanted them to fly by which was aim for the man and don't miss him if you're flying a two-seater get the observer first until you've silenced the gun don't bother about the pilot which makes sense right um, although Richtofen was now performing his duties of a lieutenant colonel, um, a wing commander in like Royal Air Force terms, he was never promoted past the relatively junior rank of Rittmeister, which is lieutenant. <laughs> um, lieutenant? Well, actually, it's equivalent to a captain, sorry, in the British Army. can't remember what's higher, though. So... The system in the British Army was for an officer to hold the rank appropriate to his level of command, um, if only on a temporary basis, even if he had not been formally promoted. So if your commander dies and you're now the commander, you take his spot. You get promoted even if you haven't been promoted. Makes sense. Which makes sense. But in the German Army, it was not unusual for a wartime officer to hold lower rank than his duties implied. German officers were promoted according to a schedule and not by battlefield promotion. <laughs> it was also the custom for a son not to hold a higher rank than his father, and Richtofen's father was a reserve major. Still? So, yeah, well, no, just ever. Oh, okay. Um, so he could never get higher than his father? Right. How does that work? 
That's such a weird, like... I don't know, man. Seems like a shitty system. Yeah. What if Rick Defend's grandfather was like a little corporal? <laughs> <laughs> Rick Defend's like, what do you mean I can't get above corporal? Sucks. So he sustained a serious head wound in July of 1917 during combat, causing instant disorientation and temporary partial blindness. Um, he regained his vision in time to ease the aircraft out of a spin and execute a forced landing in a field of friendly territory. <laughs> so he's in his plane and he can't see. So he shuts his plane off and is like, I got to wait for the shock to wear off. Like I got to, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but then he like slowly gets his vision back, but in time to actually land the plane. Meanwhile, the plane is spinning. Which is fucking nuts. <laughs> the injury required multiple operations to remove bone splinters from the impact area. Um, the Red Baron, he's now finally like being known as the Red Baron, returned to active service against doctor's orders in July. But Not took, a surprise. Took convalescent leave from September to October. Um, his wound is thought to have caused lasting damage. He later often suffered from post-flight nausea and headaches as well as a change in temperament. There's a theory linking his injury with his eventual death. Change in temperament, though. Brain injury. That's what yeah. we talked about last week. TBIs, man. Mm-hmm. So during his leave, Richtofen completed uh, his autobiographic sketch, um, the, the Red Battle Flyer. And written on the instructions of the press intelligence propaganda section of the Air Force paper. <laughs> like, I, I don't know. That was a whole bunch of, like, German <laughs> words in there. And I'm just trying to, like, get them. Okay. It shows the evidence of having been heavily censored and edited. So he drew this picture of himself. But they they put it in, like, the Air Force, basically, newsletter. Mm-hmm. And, um... But they really heavily censored and edited it. So what? You, what? It seems so weird. What would he have dra- drawn that they would have been like, no? I don't know. But this is also part of his autobiography. So there, he like he wrote an article with it. Um, there are passages that are most unlikely to have been inserted by an official editor. Rick Diffin wrote, "Quote: My father discriminates between a sportsman and a butcher. The latter, the latter shoots for fun." When I have shot down an Englishman, my hunting passion is satisfied for a quarter of an hour. Therefore, I do not succeed in shooting down two Englishmen in succession. If one of them comes down, I have the feeling of complete satisfaction. Only much later have I overcome my instinct and have become a butcher. End quote. In another passage, he wrote, quote, I am in wretched spirits after every aerial combat. I believe that the war is not as the people at home imagine it with a hurrah and a roar. It is a very serious, very grim affair. I don't know a whole lot of people during World War One that thought of it as fun. <laughs> right, but he's like, I'm really good at this, but this is a really shitty thing to be good at. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, that's tough. Uh-oh, her daughter's awake. All right. So let's talk about, uh, let's talk about the end here. Um, he'd become such a legend that it was feared that his death would be a blow to the morale of the German people. He refused to accept a ground job after his wound, stating that, quote, every poor fellow in the trenches must do his duty, end quote, and that he would therefore continue to fly in combat. Certainly, he had become part of a cult of officially encouraged hero worship. I don't really know what that sentence means, but 
German propaganda circulated various false rumors, including that the British had raised squadrons specifically to hunt Richtofen and had offered large rewards at an automatic Victoria Cross to any Allied pilot who shot him down. Victoria Cross, basically like the Purple Heart. Sure. I, I don't know if that's the exact equivalent or what, but... I mean, Probably pretty close. A war accolade. Uh, passages from his correspondence indicate he may have at least half believed some of these stories himself. He's like maybe getting a little bit paranoid, but also maybe like they were actually hunting him down. I mean, he's got to be pretty... He said it himself. It takes a lot out of him. Every time he's fighting, it takes a lot out of him. Yeah. Mentally. So he received a fatal wound just after 11 a.m. on April 21st, 1918 while flying. Um, his opponent, who is, his last name is May, so, and his first and middle names are ridiculous. So are they French? call him May. Yeah. Had just fired on the Red Baron's cousin, Lieutenant Wolfram von Richtofen. So when he sees his cousin being attacked, he flew out, flies to his rescue and fired on May, causing him to pull away. Richtofen pursued May across the river, and the Red Baron was spotted and briefly attacked by a, a another pilot, um, and like another pilot in May's uh, like squadron. D- squadron, sure. But he was a Canadian guy, um, Captain Roy Brown. Brown had to dive sleep steeply at a very high speed to intervene and then had to climb steeply to avoid hitting the ground. Uh, Richtofen turned to avoid this attack and then resumed his pursuit of May. So they're just kind of like cat and mousing it all over the place. Yeah, dogfighting. Right. It was almost certainly during this final stage in his pursuit of May that a single bullet hit Richtofen through the chest, severely damaging his heart and lungs. It would have killed him. <laughs> As a in, bullet is known to do. It would have killed him in less than a minute. His aircraft stalled and went into a steep dive, hitting the ground in a field on a hill just north of a French village. Um, the aircraft bounced heavily upon hitting the ground. The undercarriage collapsed and the fuel tank was smashed before the aircraft skidded to a stop. Several witnesses, including gunner George Ridgway, reached the crash plane and found Richtofen already dead, and his face slammed into the butts of his machine guns, breaking his nose, fracturing his jaw, and creating contusions on his face. What a way to go. Right. So his Fokker plane was soon taken apart by souvenir hunters. People rushed in oh, and were like, yeah. give me this. <laughs> <laughs> um, Especially if he is in France. He's the enemy. Right. So I, I thought this was really interesting. In tw- uh, twenty nine, oh sorry, in two thousand nine, Rick Defin's death certificate was found in the archives of um, some place in Poland. <laughs> he had it's like Ostro Wilkopolski or something. He Ish, had briefly uh, and that's Wilkopolski. <laughs> yeah, okay. He had briefly been stationed in this place in Poland before going to war, as it was part of Germany until the end of the World War One. The document is a one-page, handwritten form in 1918 Registry Book of Deaths. It misspells Richtofen's name and simply states that he had died April 21st, 1918 from wounds sustained in combat. So there's a whole bunch of theories and controversy about who actually killed him. So they don't know if it was May coming up behind him and killing him. They don't know if... uh, Or if it was... The brown guy, the other guy, Canadian, the brown guy, the brown guy, Canadian, <laughs> Roy if it Brown, was Roy Brown, <laughs> the Canadian, who came up behind him and shot him, or if it was May who like was able to turn around and get him, or if it was somebody on 
the ground with an anti-aircraft gun. Sure. Which is probably the most, like, plausible one. This is the one they kind of lean towards of, like, just the angle of the wound and stuff and how he... Like how he died, they it had to have been something. Yeah, you get from Ted Dance and CSI out there recreate the whole scene. <laughs> stick a stick a stick through his chest and be like, "Well, the angle of the bullet." And... Yeah, but uh, Brown himself never spoke much about what happened that day, claiming, "quote There's no point in me commenting as the evidence is already out there." End quote. He's like, "He killed him." I was there, but I don't want anything to do with this. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so there've been a bunch of, um, like post-mortem, basically he goes on a trip after he dies. Here's, here's what happens. So they are going to, um, they buried him in the place that he died in France, but then Germany was like, wait, we want him back. Mm -hmm. Duh. Dig him up. Yeah. So he's interred, uh, back in Germany, but then his family is like, well, wait, we want him. So they give him to his family. In Poland. Right. Well, wait. I thought you said he was born in Poland. I thought I did too. Anyway, he goes back to his, like, family's plot, and then the um, German military is like, well, he should be in a German military, like, a, a veter- veteran memorial kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So then he's like, yeah, you're probably right. So they, they, <laughs> they bury him there again. He's like the Pope. I know. <laughs> like carting he, his body all over the world. He's all over the place. Like Queen Mary or Queen, what's the one that just died? Elizabeth. Yeah. Um, So he was given a very respectful, very organized, full military funeral. Um. Th- six of his squadron's officers served as pallbearers, and the guard of honor from the squadron's other ranks fired a salute. The Allied squadrons stationed nearby presented memorial, memorial wreaths, one of which was inscribed with the words, To our gallant and worthy foe. <laughs> uh, authors of, like, all the time, but still really have questioned whether Richtofen had achieved 80 victories, insisting that his record was exaggerated for propaganda purposes. But some claim that he took credit for aircraft down um, by his squadron or like by um, by his wing, his other his other guy, his yeah. observer. So they're not really sure about that number, but there are some that think it could be higher because of stuff like... Um, fell into enemy territory or whatever just wasn't accounted for and that kind of thing sure uh so just a little bit about like where his stuff is now um captain roy brown donated the seat of the fokker triplane in which the german flying ace made his final flight to the royal canadian military institute apart from the plane seat um in Toronto, or the that Royal Canadian Military Institute in Toronto also holds a side panel signed by the pilots of Brown Squadron. The engine of Richtofen's um, Fokker plane was donated to the Imperial War Museum in London, where it st- is still on display. Nice. The museum also holds the Baron's machine guns. And the joystick of Richtofen's aircraft can be seen at the Australian War Memorial in Canberra. And the Australian National Aviation Museum has what is suspected to be the fuel tank of Richtofen's Fokker 
D1 plane. However, there is no conclusive proof of that. <laughs> so his stuff is everywhere but Germany. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> but he's in Germany, so. Somewhere. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty much what I have for you here. That's the Red Baron. Mm-hmm. Uh, so looking it up, the, they were called the Central Powers. I thought there was a different name for the, for the bad guys, because they called the Axis in World War Two, but they were just the Central Powers. Right. In World War One. You know, Iron Maiden also did a song about the Red Baron. Did they? Mm-hmm. I did not know that. That's where, uh, remember when we saw him live and. Bruce Dickinson's yelling, climb like a monkey. That's from that song. Is it? Yeah, it's terrible. Oh. It's probably one of the worst lyrics of that. Of, it's really bad. <laughs> of Iron, that Iron Maiden's ever written. Um, yeah, and he did like the, when he says climb like a monkey, he does like puts his arms out and his feet up. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway. Um, yeah, so the Red Baron. um not just a delicious take and bake pizza. Is it a take and bake pizza? Yeah. Oh, right, right, right. But that's him, right? That's supposed to be him. Yeah. There you go. Are... So after all that, he got a pizza named after him. Pretty kind much. of a shitty pizza, but it's not bad. <laughs> it's not bad. They have the like personal pizzas in the like little plastic wrap thing in the freezer section. That you just microwave, and I ate so many of those in college. The Red Baron. God, pieces. they're the good, they're the best. <laughs> uh, I just remember the Iron Maiden song is called "Death or Glory." Huh. Fits. Climb like a monkey. Oh, it's a terrible lyric. It's pretty bad. Um, uh, cool. That's another one of those. Is a perfect, perfect thing for this, uh, for this podcast. Everyone knows who the Red Baron is. No one knows the story behind him. That's what they said in the Sabaton history thing, and I was like, "You're right." That's exactly what we need. Mm-hmm. Very good. I thought you were going to do something else related to a Sabaton song, um, but you didn't. So. Did you think I was going to do The Last Stand? No. I figured you would do the uh, Russian one. Which Russian one? Uh, the uh, Attack of the Dead Men. Oh. Great. Yeah. Great Sabaton song. One of my favorites. That is a good one. Uh, but yeah, so if you're a fan of Sabaton, go listen to them. Go check them out. If you're a fan of military history at all, definitely check them out if you like music about it. Or history in of, general. I mean, history in general, but mainly military history. Because I'm not a big military history fan, but like it is all just really interesting. And they're yeah. good songs. Like It it would be different if they were yeah, it's like songs. Yeah, it's like a metal, but it's like, what do they call that? Like a melodic metal kind of thing. It's not, yeah. there's not a bunch of, it's not Cookie Monster music. Right. You can usually understand them. They're I mean, Swedish. other than the Swedish part. Well, right, yeah. Um, but yeah, Sabaton's a great band. Yeah. And really a great source of any of our stories. True. <laughs> so it may not be the last time that you, we hear about them on this uh, on this show. I kind of doubt it. I kind of want to do another one. Yeah, definitely. Uh, do you have anything else? Um, No, I don't think so. Cool. Get us to 1,000 listens, everyone. Like, share, subscribe, do all that fun stuff. Yeah. Check out the YouTubes. Uh, and yeah, we'll catch you next week. Bye, love you. Bye, love you.